I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello, this is To the Republic with Jake and Jeff, a show dedicated to exploring civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. On this month's episode, we wanted to take a look at something that you and I have talked about quite a bit on our podcast, Say What You Mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's democratic norms. Yes. And the breaking of norms, um, which I don't think we're necessarily going to get into unless we use it in a historical example. Yeah. But we wanted to explore not only for ourselves to learn um, and further understand the importance of democratic norms, but also to hopefully teach. Yeah. <laughs> so I th- people I think understand so. where and what we're talking about. I think so. And I think it's been a goal of our show um, generally is to try to stay apolitical. Right, right. And not make it known where our own personal like political beliefs right, yeah. lie and just these these are the processes of u.s government right this is civics right um so before we get into completely you know just defining democratic norms and the and the, the layers of it well you wanted to first define positive statements and normative statements yeah so a positive statement is something that's objective statement it's testable by theory um and basically, I'll just give an example. Okay. Um, if the government raises the tax on beer, this will lead to a fall in profits of the brewers. Mm-hmm. That's a positive statement. Okay. It's, it's something that's objectable, it's testable, mm-hmm. and it's arguable. Okay. Um, based, you know, it's it's arguable, but it's it's but it's but it's also testable. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's testable. Uh, a normative statement is a value judgment. It's placing value based on someone's beliefs or someone's per, um, someone's personal beliefs, someone's yeah. um, their own views on the world. Okay. And some, something like pollution is the most serious economic problem mm-hmm. or retirement age should be raised to 70 to combat the effects of our aging population. Right. Those are normative statements. Yes. Those are sort of statements that are not testable. It, per se, yeah, because right. you can't like well because it's subjective, okay, right? Because a yeah, normative, yeah, yeah. A normative, I guess I should have started with that. Yeah. A normative statement is subjective. Uh-huh. Um, the pollution is the most serious economic problem. Mm-hmm. We can the, we can debate whether it's an economic problem or not, mm-hmm. but it's is it the most? That's subjective. Oh, gotcha. It's, it's like adding those like in a word like most yes. makes it makes it subjective. Okay, so that that would, that's a normative statement. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's important to kind of highlight the difference between positive and normative when we're talking about democratic norms because democratic norms are unwritten rules right they're subjective they're based on values they're based on uh, moral beliefs and that's a long-held in western democracies especially norms are a long-held tradition that kind of guide how governments are supposed to are supposed to act when the constitution doesn't directly say you, a, a government official can or cannot do this. So another way of looking at at democratic norms is like uh, kind of like social contracts. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of agrees to these terms without officially agreeing to it. Exactly. Um, one example you and I have talked about um, was kind of the rules of, of a pickup basketball game. Exactly. Um, so you have <clears throat> unwritten rules of a pickup basketball game. The pickup basketball games are not 
officiated like the NBA or uh, you know NCAA, NCAA. You know what I mean? There's no if so if you're having a pickup game you don't have the rule book right there and mm-hmm. and you're calling calling certain fouls or, or or whatever um but an example of like that example of pickup basketball is as you're playing with your friends you are kind of establishing the rules that you all agree to it's not official exactly but you guys are are finding a way to guide the game so that you can play and then when people go and challenge those rules there's not like uh there may or may not well there there isn't an impact of pickup basketball game there isn't mm-hmm. going to be legal ramifications for breaking them right but by constantly being the guy that calls a calls a foul every mm-hmm. time he misses a shot you were you are kind of you're degrading the game a little bit oh that's a great you're, point um you're calling into question the legitimacy of of, of the game itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you can if you look at that and try to place it in the context of our government mm-hmm. when you have one side or the other who are constantly pushing the limits of what is legal mm-hmm. even though it's technically maybe constitutionally or, or quasi constitutionally mm-hmm. within their power to do that right to gain you know to gain their own political advantages mm-hmm. or whatever they're pushing the edges of it even though it technically may be legal you have to worry about the longevity of of the stability of that system, but then also the legitimacy of that system, because that invites retaliation from the other, from the other side who feels like they're that side's not playing by the same kind of unwritten rules. So I think when you're talking about democratic norms, it's really hard to pinpoint what they are. And and when it's not tangible, it's very, and it's very conceptual. I think they tend to be kind of overlooked Mm -hmm. by certain, by, you know, they tend to be overlooked in the hustle and bustle of, a government that oversees the lives of 300 million people, mm-hmm. but they're incredibly, incredibly important. I really like that point you made about about foul calling in this pickup game, mm-hmm. because like the Constitution and um, with democratic norms, the Constitution is that the law. It is the law of the land. That's what everyone uses to refer. But it's not. It's you know there is room for interpretation with pickup games. The law that you could refer to is, let's say, NBA rules, the yeah. NBA rule book. Um, but in this game of pickup basketball the foul calling is a hundred percent relying on the individuals calling either their own fouls exactly and the subjective nature of those what is a foul what isn't a foul and letting letting them go sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't have an objective referee there exactly calling whether or not that is a foul or isn't a foul you're relying on yourself or another person to call that foul or to concede to a foul call Mm -hmm. maybe you did get hit but you're going to let it go this time because maybe next time you make a foul and they let it go exactly there's this unspoken agreement of just loosely letting the game flow so that you can get to an end point that's a perfect that's (laughs) such a perfect point when you're not conceding to foul calls Mm -hmm. and you start to it starts to wear on relationships. It starts to right, right. drive wedges between the two sides that are playing. You have two different teams. You look at that in the government sense. You have two different teams mm-hmm. within the government that are supposed to be working together to keep this game going. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, the basketball analogy is perfect, but in government, 
they're supposed to be cooperating to for right. a single goal. Whereas in a basketball game, they're com- they are competing for mm-hmm. one side to win or the other. In pol- you can look at politics as a game. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people, one side wins and the other side loses. The other, and then vice versa. Down the road, this game continues. And then I think by using this basketball analogy and why I think it's so perfect is because those are relationships when you get off the court that you still have to maintain. Right. You still have to go about your lives with these people. And by trying to have one little win by calling a foul on a missed shot that may or may not be subjectively um, or even positively a call, a call that should be made, trying to, when you, when you're constantly trying to push the edges to, for your own gain, you ruin relationships that you need going forward. And it creates that kind of gridlock tension. And you see that in our government, when Mm -hmm. you start seeing that kind of gridlock and the factionalism that driving, that's driving kind of our politics today in a lot of ways. Right. So now that we've talked about norms kind of conceptually, mm-hmm. I think it, it'll help kind of bring this home if we give a historical example. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think one of the best examples comes from the early republic. I think that's something we, we like. We've, we've done with every uh, every episode is mm-hmm. kind of give examples from the different time periods, especially trying to get back to the early republic. So right. In 1798, President uh, Adams passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm-hmm. And originally, I mean, there's two parts to this act the alien part of it was to limit um was aimed at limiting uh french influence because shortly after the revolution france became uh, revolutionary france became a kind of a hot button issue within um in especially with their expansion anyway that's a different topic for a different day the specifically the sedition acts is what really affected domestic politics in the united states during the at the time and what it ended up doing was repressing domestic protest, especially amongst the uh, publications that were around the uh, around the, the, the states. And what it ended up doing is it, it, it kind of set up modern day federalism by codifying states rights over you know, in federal rights that were ended up being kind of the laying the groundwork for the challenges to the federal government over the issues of slavery, but different topic for a different day. So real quick with that alien and sedition act, was the so the idea you had the Federalists and the and the Republicans mm-hmm. kind of going fighting for either control or their understanding of how this democracy or this nation should work. Correct. And there was a there was a concern that maybe these Republicans mm-hmm. um, like Jefferson and Madison were maybe getting too close or or relying too much on their influence from the French. Yeah, there was a concern there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, because a lot of immigrants tended to skew more towards the the voting uh, of the Democratic Republicans. I, I know that the, the publications that were you and I are using as our research mm-hmm. um, label them as Republicans, right? But really, it's not. It, it shouldn't be conflated with the Party of Lincoln, right? This, right, this, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's re- the Republicans because they believed in more. Um, Open rep- more yes. open representation versus the Federalists, which we've discussed in the past, mm-hmm. which are um, more relied upon landed gentry mm-hmm. to make decisions. So this act was used as a tool to limit the other side. Yes. Okay. It was. Yeah. Okay. And 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 it was found when so when um, it was passed through the legislature and signed right. by President Adams, the. Um, the, it should be noted that the Congress was held by mostly by majority Federalists. Okay. So they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they passed this act 
in a way to kind of consolidate power. Okay. Yeah. Because there was fear that, of, uh, especially with a lot of, with immigrants coming in, mm-hmm. the republic, the Democratic Republican, the parties of the party of Thomas would eventually become the party of Thomas Jefferson would uh, would surpass the Federalists in um, in both the the legislature and then eventually the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ended up doing was um, a, a quote from the Alien and Sedition Acts mm-hmm. uh, would uh, punish or by fining or imprisonment any of those anybody who wrote, printed, uttered, or published any false, scandalous, or malicious writing against the government. Mm-hmm. Incredibly odd. You don't think that something yeah. like that had ever be, could ever be published in the United States, and it's a clear violation of multiple First Amendment rights. Right, but was passed through the legislature, a seemingly legal process. Mm-hmm. But you see that okay, well, it's, maybe it's technically legal in the sense and the process in which it was passed, mm-hmm. but you're trampling on a... I mean, if you're looking at a system of norms, mm-hmm. it, well, that, that guide how politicians should be acting, that was considerably against normative behavior. Right. I think that's a great example of kind of um, an extreme polarization at the time. Um, and when you have that, that can threaten democracy or in this case rights mm-hmm. that are um, awarded through the through the constitution but also um it also should also be noted that you know this is an example of extreme polarization but it, for democracies to work polarization is necessary mm-hmm. so um th- this this specific case is interesting because you see this extreme and at, at a time where you know it's kind of romanticized the the establishment of of the this this country mm-hmm. um, and here you have an example of people pushing the envelope to either withhold power or um, gain power yes exactly um, so over over the length of this law being in place 20 uh, re- Republican newspaper editors were arrested and some were in prison. Mm. Um, most famously, um, rep- a actual rep- representative to the federal Congress um, from Vermont, uh, Matthew Lyon, mm-hmm. uh, his letter criticized President Adams by saying uh, President Adams had an unbound thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and self-avarice. Uh, mm-hmm. Caused him to be imprisoned while Federalists, um, fe- Federalists uh, sent Lyons to prison. His constituents actually re-elected him to Congress. So he was in prison wow. when he goes re-elected to, wow. Con- re-elected to Congress. That's interesting. So when you think about kind of the... We like to say, you know, this is such a divisive time in mm-hmm. our politics police politicians are getting are getting thrown in jail right right, right now so it, it, it's an interesting case for study printed to look opinion at. yeah exactly right <laughs> and it's not like he was saying anything particularly bad about Adams. right but when you when you pass something if you do, if you think about that you look at this in in the context of norms mm-hmm. and this was passed clearly to for one side to gain an uh, uh, an institutional advantage over the other mm-hmm. and even though it was passed through seemingly a you know a legitimate democratic process in line with you know how the constitution um you know states about bills should be passed this bill was obviously outside the normative behavior of how we would expect politicians to act and you see the ramifications you know, this is obviously an extreme mm-hmm. but you see the ramifications of kind of the the break the breakdowns of the guardrails of democracy, which I think you and I have both seen, norms also be called the guardrails of democracy. Right. It's the unwritten, the unwritten rules mm-hmm. that these kind of bills, this kind of political, you know, to gain political, you know, using it as a political maneuver, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know has has real world consequences. Mm-hmm. Real quickly, one point that I was thinking about is, uh, you know, the only, how are you supposed to manage these political norms if they're not law? Um, and one suggestion that you see is to make them law. But you can't make laws for every single thing. Exactly. You can't control this behavior just to either limit or 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 promote something. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is also that can be problematic when you're just like, all right, let's write it up. It's a law now. Um, I think that I think that the, having the norms allows for a little bit of wiggle room, um, and uh, I, like with the example with basketball, it also allows um, the the game to continue. Exactly, and and that's all what we're trying to do, right? This right. is democracy. Government is not a one shot game where you and like the the two sides meet and whatever comes of it that's and then the game is over it's mm-hmm. like no there there is this is a multi-round game this game is never designed to end right so you have to maintain relationships you, you maybe some maybe you sacrifice sometimes maybe you lose on another right. time but you see the other side as even though they're you're technically your opponent but they're not evil they're not subversive they're not they're not they don't have they have the legitimate right to power, right? Is what I'm trying to. And say. we'll get into that when we talk about the two norms that stand out. Um, but I think, in reference to your your point about gridlock, I think that that's exactly what happens in a game of basketball or in a game of politics when you just make new rules. Mm-hmm. It slows the game down. It stops the game entirely when you're just throwing new rules into it just to control or make something new exactly and then also the other point uh, there's another point we made earlier in in the segment was that it invites retaliation that, oh, you know, using, using of this the exact same um strategies by the other side and retaliation of you using this of that other of the other side using mm-hmm. it to to advance their own political goals and i think as the, the retaliation to the Federalists by the Republicans for passing the Alien and Sedition Acts mm-hmm. was that Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, some of the um, some of the other uh, Republicans went to the state houses mm-hmm. and um, passed laws within the state houses to uh, limit the effects of the Alien and Sedition Acts to right. basically make that law null and void within those states. And what that ended up doing was propelling. Um, in the early up to the Civil War, states' rights over federal rights on certain issues, which was coincidentally was the the main cause of Southern secession, saying the federal government does not have the right to tell us that slavery is illegal, right? Because of earlier precedent set by re- you know retaliation on both sides over the passing of the earlier Alien and Sedition Acts. So you can see how this kind of gridlock and this tension have long-term consequences. Right. And, the, and, the, and the destruction of norms have long-term consequences mm-hmm. that carry on for decades and generations. So it, it's, it's, it, even though it's not, you know, it's not written law, they're incredibly important to be maintained. Absolutely. And with that, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to look at two norms that stand out as fundamental to a functioning democracy. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. And this is To The Republic. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, 
group classes and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Many thanks to New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is a premier cannabis market in the Vancouver, Portland metro area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles, CBD cream, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Boulevard. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow, Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.saychow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 360-210-210. Welcome back. You're listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. Before the break, we discussed the conceptual nature of normative behavior in a democratic government, its importance to the longevity of the system, and we then gave an historical example of the breakdown of democratic norms by examining the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Yes. (laughs) In this segment, (laughs) we're going to look at two norms that stand out as fundamental to a functioning democracy. And the first one is mutual toleration. Yeah, so mutual toleration is kind of basically it's the process of I see my opponents as legitimate. Right. And that's kind of like the the basis, the, the basic, you know, ideology of right. mutual toleration is that I've, I've, even though we may have disagreements on marginal things or even about, you know, the, how to run a government... Mm-hmm you agree that both of either you or I or whomever has the legitimate right to power. Right. The definition I have here is that it's the notion that as long as our rivals play by constitutional rules, we accept that they have an equal right to exist, compete for power, and govern. Exactly. That's perfectly put. So we kind of reference this in the first segment, but you you do have opposing sides. You do have opposing mm-hmm. parties um, and and. Each side, each party has a different way of of solving a particular any particular issue. Exactly. But I think the main idea, the main goal here is that we are all part of the same team. Exactly. How we get these goals and, and laws and rules established or what for, that may come at, at, at any expense or different ways. But the mutual toleration of one another, the understanding that you guys or each group is kind of they want to withhold democracy they want to keep the united states intact i mean that's the idea right we have shared goals yes exactly Mm -hmm. so but when you get to the point and you start vilifying the opposition and you start calling them um the enemy 
or you you refer to them as um, as enemies yeah. and not rivals. As subversive, as criminal. Right, um, right. There's a lot of different ways to you know to label somebody as an enemy. Yes. Um, they're if this person this person is elected, they're going to use unconstitutional means. Mm-hmm, Basically, mm-hmm. Um, so you'll use any means necessary to keep yourself in power. I think right. is kind of where this ends up leading. Right. And I think this norm, this mutual toleration, is is has developed. Um, obviously, we we see historically exa- all over internationally of people using um, the terms like enemies to to either gain power or hold power. Um, but the, as far as in the United States system, this mutual toleration is something that has, you know, it's been tested at times. Definitely. But the idea is that you're, you're all here on the same team and you all have different, you all have shared goals, but there's that line that you don't cross. Exactly. And this, just, this isn't just in politics. This exactly. is amongst citizens and voters. Mm-hmm. Just because you vote on something differently does not make you enemies. Exactly. You have different opinions and that's okay. There's a mutual toleration. Maybe you'll find a common goal or a common solution somewhere down the road, but there is give and take throughout a democracy. And I think that that's what the point of this mutual toleration is trying to reinforce or, or, or describe. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, when you see a breakdown of mutual toleration, Mm -hmm. what, what happens? And I think what one of the, Major main int- instances of um, this particular norm's breakdown, mutual toleration, mm-hmm. is when another side sees their vision as the only way that the country can survive going forward. Like the the very future and the survivability of the nation is is tied to this particular side's you know vision for the country. Mm-hmm. And I think you you saw that you know, going back to the the 1798 Alien and Sedition Act mm-hmm. anec- anecdote that we used last segment is that the Federalists fundamentally believed that their way of governing you um the the land that the the people the general masses could not which is something that the republicans were trumping is that bringing more people into the system allowing immigrants to have more of a vote Mm -hmm. um allowing people who weren't landed gentry to have a vote um was a was a fundamental threat to the federalists views of the of it was such a differing opinion on the role of government and role of governance and how um, government are granted power who had power within the system the the federalists viewed the republicans as such a threat to their to the country that they were u- willing to use any means necessary to maintain that power right and they passed alien and sedition acts which were used to then jail dissenting opinions mm-hmm. so um i think that when you're that's one of the areas when this norm gets broken down you start to see those kind of words crop up to that we talked about mm-hmm. as uh, descript, you know, describing the other, the other side. Right. One, one way I saw that it was well put as far as that idea of our way is the best way is that nobody has a monopoly on truth. Exactly. Everybody has a, a way of solving these problems and you may disagree, but it doesn't make one way or the other completely unusable or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this isn't zero sum either. Yes. Right? So yes. Once one side's gain relative to yours does not mean that you're completely losing or the country is losing. That they're they're you're an elect politicians are elected officials, and one of the major aspects of that job is to go work with elected other elected officials, which is part. I mean, part as long as it was 
as long as everybody is adhering to the rules of yes. the Constitution, the norm is is that you have an obligation to work with the other side. And the only thing I would add to that is if, if we as citizens or we as a country, if we trust in democracy, if we trust in our democracy, then we accept the results of that democracy as legitimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one consequence to this norms breakdown is, you know, we've seen it historically in other countries. Um, there are a few examples that you and I have found um, throughout uh, South America. But if you break down this mutual toleration and you start labeling your opponents as the enemy or a threat to to what you have as far as a country or democracy that can result in the rise of authoritarianism that, exactly that can lead to the rise of a dictatorship if that language is used if you're constantly saying that everybody else is wrong and your way is the best way you can see that shift you can see how that could lead to a rise of that authoritarian exactly because it, i think it 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 creates fear in the minds of, of the public. Yes. That if those people are elected to power, they have, you know, they have something to fear about the other side being elected. Therefore, they're fine with their constituents using extra constitutional means, essentially illegal acts or pushing yes. the bounds of these norms to maintain the the sole, you know, to maintain power in any way necessary. Right, right. And I think it should be emphasized, you know, this is what the episode's about, but it's about democratic norms. This is not a law, the mutual toleration. Yeah. Nobody's required to not speak this way or use this rhetoric against your um, your rivals. Yeah, it's, it's great that you point that out. Yeah, so this is mutual toleration is a democratic norm that as, as a... As a democracy, everybody has kind of agreed to like, all right, this does not get us to where we need to go. And it's perfect that you point out that this isn't a law, right? Is that right? In which, which makes it really easy to to push to its limits or completely ignore it in general, right? And then the retaliatory nature of that mm -hmm. is that if you're claiming one, if you're going to start claiming one side is unfit to rule, does not have the legitimate right to power, is subversive, is criminal, mm -hmm. you don't want to be the side who's having the suckers payoff in this particular interaction, right? So you don't want to be the side that's using, that is being hurt by the other side ignoring a democratic norm. You're going, typically, the other side is going to retaliate. Right. So now you have both teams acting in, in a way that is wholly undemocratic mm -hmm. and, and really toxic to the system as a whole. Absolutely. So now we're going to take a look at what I think is a little more complex, um, it's, 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 it can be kind of confusing, um, but we're going to try to work through this. Um, the second norm, which is uh, uh, institutional forbearance. Yeah, so institutional forbearance, I think, just to put it plainly, it's mm -hmm. just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Right. I have a definition here. It says forbearance in this instance means um, patient self-control, restraint and tolerance, or the action of restraining from exercising a legal right. Exactly. Now, you could look at that and say, well, why wouldn't I do that? It's my legal right. Mm -hmm. I can do that. And, and in the same way that you look at mutual toleration, there is no law saying that you can't call your rivals the enemy. There's there's no laws that say you can't say, you know, that your way is the right way, um, which gets into that, that norm, that agreement. Um, but in this case, you have the legal right to do something, but you're choosing not to. Because of what it can mean to stability legitimacy of a of a particular institution exactly why is that important well it's important because it, it basically what it does is breaks down the legitimacy of 
it breaks, breaks, down, breaks down the legitimacy of the institution. It breaks down cooperation between the two competing mm-hmm. sides within that institution, or the uh, relationships that are necessary for the game to continue. Right. One example that we have as far as this institutional forbearance is presidential term limits. Exactly. So even prior to um, the passage of the two-term limit law mm-hmm. as a constitutional amendment that eventually became a constitutional amendment mm-hmm. was passed uh, after the FDR's after FDR's presidency mm-hmm. it had been practice not law that every president had adhered to that would only serve two terms right so it's their legal right as a president before FDR's passing and before this before this was into law it was the presidential's right legal right to run more than two terms as many times as he wanted there was no constitutional Written law or restriction that said that a president couldn't run more than twice. Right. And so you could look at that institutional forbearance as kind of a uh, of an understanding or or an agreement Mm -hmm. um, or a norm that maybe it's more beneficial for democracy or for this country if if I choose to continue this norm of only serving two terms prior to it becoming a -hmm. law in the the the. the norm was set by President George Washington, right? And everybody followed that after him. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Ulysses S. Grant, when he served his two terms, mm-hmm. was pressured by friends to um, to get a to go for a third term. Mm-hmm. Responded to um, to the U.S. House of Representatives in his um, in a speech to a joint session of Congress. Said mm-hmm. the precedent established by Washington and other presidents. In retiring from office after their second term has become a part of our Republican system. Any departure from this time-honored custom would be unwise, unpatriotic, and fraught with peril to our free institutions. So furthering that, when uh, Grover Cleveland Mm -hmm. was seeking a third non-consecutive term, so Grover Cleveland was the one president who served a term, didn't win re-election, ran again, won. Mm -hmm. So when he went to go serve a third consecutive term, the Democratic Party refused to nominate him for that for that third oh, wow. for that third right. run so that his own party um, kept that norm as an established right. as, as a um, established right. by refu- like not allowing him the platform to run for a third mm-hmm. uh, for a third uh, term right so it's interesting that so when you have presidents it's also adhered by people underneath the, the presidents right it goes all the way throughout the system that everybody's kind of understanding or accepted this norm and they've agreed to continue it because obviously there's a sense that this two-term limit is it does work and it works and it's worked since washington so let's continue that and ultimately obviously it's interesting that it became law but f- until then everybody all throughout congress to the presidency agreed that maybe this two-term limit is adequate and, and it's important. I think they, right. I, in, especially in the American context, when you, there's all, or our system, as we explored in past episodes, is layered with so many different checks and balances mm-hmm. that this isn't a, a check even on its, like it's a check on itself right. against the ambitions of an individual. That mm-hmm. this, the system is set up to the check the in individual ambitions to gain and seek power and maintain power. Um, so by having two term limits is very much within the Ameri- within the american context norm it's an it's 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 just an it's a norm that was followed prior to fdr without it being law right so like one area where institutional forbearance kind of creeps up and especially in modern times mm-hmm. you see it a lot with uh, a president's nomination of a 
Supreme Court um, okay. seat to a Supreme Court seat or like an ambassadorship or something to uh, the head of a cabinet position. Right. And the legislature is controlled by a different party. Mm-hmm. It's completely within that party's control to block those nominations as long as they want to. Mm-hmm. For seemingly whatever reason they want to, right. they can. Well, when you, you start with that kind of what's what experts call in, uh, constitutional hardball, you start using the full extent of the law as a, for political reasons, you enhance that gridlock between the two parties. For sure. Whereas where mutual or as institutional forbearance, when it's working, and the the party in the legislature under, understanding that in order for us to continue to cooperate with the other party, we allow picks to go. We allow picks to go through. Mm-hmm. We're not constantly just blocking right. um, nominations because the other party is the one nominating. Right. Them. So it's it's seemingly they're kind of obvious norms mm-hmm. that we but we take for granted Absolutely. right because when they're not work when they're it's it's when they're we don't notice them until they're not working right it's like a kicker in football you never really <laughs> notice the kicker until he shanks a field goal. right it's right kind exactly of, kind of the same thing, for sure right? so not really the same thing but i'm just, just <laughs> you're seeing it just a point yeah um so, but you can also make the argument that mutual toleration and um and institutional forbearance are are basically conjoined in right. a lot of ways. They're kind of they kind of self reinforce. Absolutely. And, and so, using the example of the legislature approving a president's nominations, uh, when you don't have mutual toleration for the other party, mm-hmm. you are more inclined to block those right. um, nominations because you don't see the president as being um, right. Doesn't have the rightful claim to power. Therefore you've lost mutual toleration for that other party, you're more willing to block, you're used, more willing to use and uh, go to erode institutional forbearance because you don't have mutual toleration. Right. One point that keeps coming up that I think I would like to emphasize um, is that when you divert from these norms, one word that continuously comes up throughout our discussion today is retaliation, the threat of retaliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you use retaliation and you're not adhering to these norms, that results in what we've discussed as a gridlock or the the collapse or the damage to the de- the democratic system. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. So as far as democratic norms, both mutual toleration and institutional forbearances are considered two norms that stand out as fundamental to a functioning democracy. These norms can be viewed as or described as being a reflection of norms on a macro level. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but when we come back, we're going to look at some examples of democratic norms on the micro level, specific to the United States. And we're also going to discuss the devil's bargain. You have been listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. We'll be right back. Community Radio Like This is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Hey, it's Jeff from To The Republic. Many thanks to New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver, Portland area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles, CBD creams, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the New Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Boulevard. 
open from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. I'd also like to give thanks to Just In Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just In Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just In Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services, which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's my justintimejob.com or at 360-836-5806. Welcome back to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. In the last section, we looked at two democratic norms, mutual toleration and institutional forbearance. So I want to start off this last segment by discussing something that's kind of conceptual in nature, but I think it points to somewhere we're going to all of this norm breaking can go when okay. you have a side who is fearful for, for its political life and okay. starts to see its power erode. Okay. What, what, what are they willing to, what is that side willing to do to maintain power? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the avenues that has been highlighted is something called the devil's bargain. And, okay. I, and the devil's bargain is when established people in power look to, kind of co-opt radicalization mm-hmm. to maintain power. And so uh, I just want to clarify this. So so established politicians or people in power, they're being open or accepting radicalized ideas or people who are are promoting those ideas. People are promoting their ideas. Okay. Mostly that's how you see it. Right. But right. that also gives that also gives legitimacy to those radicalized beliefs. Oh, okay, okay. Indirectly, right, but in, in right, a way right. that it does. Um, so some historical context, okay. it's the way that Hugo Chavez in Venezuela mm-hmm. was able to gain power. Mm-hmm. He was a political dissident in Venezuela. He was seen as a, as a, as a communist mm-hmm. um, rebel, and it was jailed. Right. But he had a, a very much a... Um, a popular he had very much popular support within the the popular within the populace of okay. Venezuela. Right. And the current sitting president mm-hmm. was dealing with economic uh inflation, mm-hmm. poor economic numbers mm-hmm. and was seeing his base starting to erode. They had lost seats in the in the legis- in the legislative branch in Venezuela prior in the in the previous election and he was coming up for re-election and was nervous about how that was going to go and to hold on to power he not only released Hugo Chavez from prison but brought him into the fold of of his party to gain that popularity yes, or support exactly okay. to, sh- to show like to show the populace look i am i understand this guy's views are popular mm-hmm. so i want so by kind of not co-opting but bringing right. him into the fold yeah tried to enhance his own power mm-hmm. by using that that kind of populist mm-hmm. um, support. Right. It could also be viewed as like a, a way for the president to maybe control or manipulate that rhetoric to withhold it or subdue it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that president was, you know, was democratically elected mm-hmm. and 
had every right in his, you know, had every constitutional right to do what he did. Mm-hmm. He used his constitutional powers to pardon. Mm-hmm. He pardoned um, Hugo Chavez and then brought him into the political fold. Well, what that did was that it legitimized Hugo Chavez and his beliefs. Hugo okay. Chavez was a very ambitious person. Right. And the president believed that by using Chavez, he could gain and enhance and codify his own political power Mm -hmm. and maintain that power for a long period of time. Right. Unfortunately, with the ambitious, that wasn't the case. He was he was the president was was hoping that the the weight of the establishment and norms and the constitution of Venezuela would be able to constrain Hugo Chavez mm-hmm. once he was brought into the system. Right, right. Well, that didn't end up working out that way. Much mm-hmm. like you see with other um, uh, demagogic leaders, mm-hmm. other authoritative, uh, demagogic char- you know, characteristics, okay. people who hold demagogic characteristics yeah. and would-be authorita- authoritarians, once, they are en- once they've entered power, are willing to ignore norms, are willing right, to right. push um, aside established behavior like Mm -hmm. established normative behavior to enhance their own political right their own political um agenda right and that's you know ambition is i think a key component to this this discussion um because that you know looking at the united states that's why the founders were so concerned about ambition Mm -hmm. because it can lead to this these extreme ideas um just to gain that power or to or to further that power or exactly. to further that reach um and then you look at how ambition also leads to this devil's bargain yes because you're 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 trying to hold on to, to power right and you can see when you can just see how this this i'm not saying the united states is on its way to venezuela right right but you can see in in states that don't have strong established norms mm-hmm. That even though Venezuela had a constitution, it had process. Mm-hmm. Eventually, um, down the road, Hugo Chavez ran for president, beating the guy that brought him into um, into the political system, right, right? And took over as president, and then began packing courts, using mm-hmm. using his power to completely fundamentally change the system and and um, taking power and consolidating it into the into the presidency and becoming essentially a dictator, right. even though he uses the guise of them being democratic elected every four years. It's, I mean, it's a dictatorship for sure. So you can, you can see how a constitution without norms is right. just words. That's great. And point. That's a so great point. norms are the guide rails of a constitution mm-hmm. because if there's nothing giving weight to those words, they're just words, right? It's that unwritten rules of the game. Exactly. That add nuance to just these words mm-hmm. which steer behavior in a way that is conducive to cooperation in cooperation oh, okay. we've really kind of just we, as we've discovered mm-hmm. and have talked about is the lifeblood of democracy absolutely so we used the country of venezuela to kind of show what a runaway um government can do when it's had its norms completely stripped and it's constitutional right. cha- constitutionally it's been challenged mm-hmm. um and that's not necessarily you know where America is headed or anything particular. That's mm-hmm. not what we're saying here, but I think it is important though to try to identify some micro level norm 
challenging or breakdowns mm-hmm. potentially in the United States. Right. Um, not at this level, level of Venezuela. I, right. I wanted to use that as an example because I think it shows to where it shows our listeners where it can go. Right. That's oh, not, yeah. And absolutely. that's not a fear tactic or anything, right. but it's just something to keep in keep in mind. Right. And that's not to say that anytime there's a norm challenge in the United States that we're heading to Venezuela, but you need to understand where it can go, its limitations absolutely. in order to you know understand norm level at a, at a more micro level. I also think as two students of history, we kind of see where things have gone and we don't want to see any of those paths taken in the United States. Exactly. So one of the micro level issues of norms that we can look at and specifically as it, as it relates to Amer- you know, the American government, okay. the American federal government is... Executive orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, executive orders have been a super hot button issue. Um, different media pundits on both sides of the political spectrum like the like to say, well, the president is using this many executive orders mm-hmm. and they're circumventing Congress. And so I kind of want to take a look at what executive orders are okay. specifically and then how they can be used to kind of subvert, you know, kind of subvert norms a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. Executive order um, of all of the different executive actions that are li- that are listed out in, in Article Two in relates to directing federal bureaucracies. Executive orders carry the most weight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a to quote a uh, Virginia University of Virginia law professor. It, it's a document that orders the executive branch officials to do something. Okay. So um, these orders required are required by law to be recorded in the Federal Register and archived, which means there's a binding document recording the action. So anytime the president issues a directive to his bureaucracies, the executive bureaucracies, um, it's rec- it, it is recorded. Mm-hmm. So it is a binding document. It, this It's not legislation because that's that's a, that's a job of the Congress. Right. But executive order um, are president's tools to implement lasting and meaningful policy within the powers granted to the president. For instance, uh, Harry's Truman, Harry Truman's Executive Order 9981 integrated the armed forces, and John uh, John F. Kennedy's Executive Order 10925 created the requirement that government contractors had to implement affim- affirmative action policies. Okay. So both of these executive orders related to um, government bureaucracies, mm-hmm. telling them how they're going to act. It's it's not really a reinterpretation of the law, mm-hmm. but it's it's a direction that the president wants the federal bureaucracies to act but the congress has a check on that by appropriating the bill so if the president issues an executive order telling federal agencies to act outside of the powers given to the executive branch it's constitutionally meaningless mm-hmm. um for example uh president obama uh issued an executive order closing Guantan- the presence at guantanamo bay mm-hmm. That's outside of the executive. That's outside of the executive's role. Mm-hmm. And Congress refused to authorize the tran- the transfer of inmates to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it, it remains open today. Okay. So you can kind of see its limits. Right. But the passing of that and the Congress pushing back, you can see where it can kind of create constitutional hardball. Yes. What we talked about in the last section, mm-hmm. where the the president seemingly was acting outside of his prerogatives. Right. Um, using an executive order to try to accomplish something that wasn't within his constitutional powers to do so. Mm-hmm. And there, at this point, there was institutional push, pushback, but you could see how these executive orders could be used by anybody right. uh, to, if you've got, 
consider the Federalists who controlled the legislative branch and the executive branch at the, at the same time passing the Alien and Sedition Acts. You mm-hmm. can see how executive orders can be used if norms aren't in place. You know, this of mutual toleration and institutional forbearance, executive right. orders can easily be used to subvert norms. So it's it's that idea of it being a legal right to have these executive or- orders and the ability to use them. Um, but then, you know, you look at that institutional forbearance of, of not exercising that right. Yeah, exactly. Another interesting point that I was thinking about is, you know, with that executive order, um, it could be for the purpose of maybe... Um, granting certain civil liberties sure. for something, and and that might be accepted by the rest of the branches and and, and the government and the citizens mm-hmm. as being okay. Um, but there is that check of it needs to be constitutionally legal. Exactly. So you may act within. You do have the legal right to sign executive orders, um, and then there is the the democratic norm of, 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 of how much or how far you can get into those parameters as well. But there is the constitution holding that legal limit. Exactly. Yeah. And the whole process of norms, I reiterate kind of from the first segment is that norms are, are value based. Right. So these executive actions, because it's value based, there's Mm -hmm. only so much, that a president can get, a, you know, historically has been able to get away with. Right. Presidents throughout history have relied on executive action. For sure. Um, but as I think mutual toleration has broken down between between parties at different times, mm-hmm. I think presidents are getting into that institutional hardball, are more mm-hmm. prone to trying to use executive actions to do more on their own because they view their, you know, their vision as being paramount to the future of the nation at the expense of process. Right. And... If you have, a, you have, then it gets into when that party gets back in power, and if they hold all branches of government, or you know the legislative and the executive branch, mm-hmm. you know they can Im- they can impose they can impose laws or look the other way when an executive action may overreach, like an executive ac- action edict may overreach. A Congress might then look to see that definition within law and not challenge right. it. So there there is a lot at play here because the Constitution is so vague on ex- what ex- what is the extent of an executive action mm-hmm. you rely on norms to guide what the scope of executive actions truly is right and and one an- another point that i just want to reiterate is is even in what you were just saying there is by breaking their norms there is that threat of retaliation once and if the power is shifted to the to your rivals and it's and you can see it's easy to do, right? Okay, well, it's not a written. We can technically do it yes. in the means of expediency. Let's just get it done, right? But what what does that bring? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is the the question that you're that most scholars are, and most people who are paying attention in politics and people who are in politics are constantly asking themselves. Absolutely, and and, and the discussion of precedence is always when when you're talking about breaking norms, precedence is an issue that is discussed mm-hmm. what what does this set how does the future look now that this has been done now that this norm has been broken does it continue to be broken or do we revert back to the norm that's a good point i think that's a concern that that is often discussed um maybe not discussed uh, often enough but i think that it's something that people should consider when they're looking at the behaviors of um our government officials yeah you may be looking in just your own individual sense right like, I want this particular thing to happen. Mm-hmm. 
and it's happening, you, I think it's important to try to separate what you want from the process in which it's being done by. That's and an I, excellent and I don't, point. And I don't think you, just because you want something done doesn't mean you have to accept the process in which it's being passed. Right. I think that um, when you lose mutual toleration mm-hmm. of the other side, you start to overlook um, you, the, the line between process and personal wants and personal, like, you know, personal beliefs start to become uh, a little blurred. Right. And th- I think that's something that you and I constantly bring up on our podcast, say what you mean, is that if you had a discussion with opposing parties and you brought up maybe a topic, if the, when you're, when you have an open discussion, you're going to find far more agreements and it gets back to that common goals. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, people have common goals for the idea of the nation, where we want to be in a democracy, how we want democracy to work, and accepting the results of that. And when you get away from that, I think that can be super problematic. Exactly. All right, Jake. Well, this has been fun. It's always fun. It is always fun. Uh, If you guys have enjoyed this show, be sure to check out our weekly podcast called Say What You Mean. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And we'd like to thank you guys for listening to our show. You can find the past episodes of this show on www.kxrwvancouver.org or on our podcast feed. And remember to vote and stay informed. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Hey, this is Jake, co-host of To the Republic on KXRW. I just wanted to say thanks to Just-In-Time Electrical for supporting our radio community. The professional electricians of Just-In-Time Electrical have the skills, training, and experience to complete your electrical project. Just-In-Time Electrical offers residential and commercial services, which include installations, upgrades, repairs, rewiring, and maintenance. More information available at myjustintimejob.com. That's myjustintimejob.com or at 360-836-5806. Community Radio Like This is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com.